Topping Talks. One hundred and five hours a week can't be beat. Welcome to Topping Talks. Topping Talks is a Topping Tribune production, and today's episode is proudly sponsored by Topping Technologies and ExpressVPN. Topping Technologies is an IT value-added reseller and services company with a special proficiency in security. Heck, I see their founder at least twice a day. I have to say he's quite handsome and brilliant. If you're a business in Texas and can use a hand, you can reach us at sales at toppingtechnologies.com. Also, are you part of the 3.6% of Americans who still care about their privacy? If you are, then perfect. ExpressVPN can assist. Even though 96% of stats are made up on the spot, ExpressVPN does give a 100% guarantee via their 30-day back mind guarantee. Now, without further ado, I'm proud to say I'm interviewing my friend and territory account manager at Point, Nick Abbott. Hi, Toppy. Thanks for having me on today. Thanks for coming on the show, brother. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. So I know it's been a lifetime since you're you know, back in the old roads of Utah. How did you first get into IT? Man, when I first went into IT, I actually had a friend who I had worked with in the past in mortgages who had moved on to do some IT tech sales for a small company based out of Utah called Fat Pipe Networks. Yes, that's a real thing. <laughs> uh, asked me about their branding was, materials. Uh, and he had mentioned that he thought I'd do well over there. So I took the leap and jumped into it. There you go. So that what what exactly did you do at Fat Pipe? It was a sales. I ran a territory for existing customers at the time. Uh, it was covering Chicago, uh, well, Illinois, Ohio, Wisconsin at first. Uh, and that's kind of where I started. And then what is the marketing story about Fat Pipe? Oh, my goodness. So they had these boxers that you could get. and read. You probably still can do this today where you go on their website. And it says... On the boxers, these white boxer shorts, fat pipe inside. <laughs> and that was their marketing. That's brilliant. And people say my marketing is too crazy or outrageous. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, did that get you a lot of leads or how, how did that root work? Or did you get any I positive mean, responses? Or I had some feedback? customers that were existing that loved it. Yeah. Thought it was really funny. I've seen some negative responses to it too from bigger companies. That didn't I, like it so much. Because they were jealous or competitors or the customers? No, they were partners, right? And so, yeah. yeah they just jealous, love it. They are just jealous they couldn't do it. Yeah, well, let's just say it went to a derivative of the big bell. Yeah. And the VP <laughs> did not like it <laughs> at all. It's so sad how few people have a good sense of humor these days. Well, I mean, it was an interesting tactic. But, yeah, yeah that, that's where I started. There you go. And then what was the transition or what got you interested in IT security? Also kind of a similar story, right? I spent about six, seven years selling uh, the networking side, right? So it was not security, although there's always some overlap, especially networking well, we, where we were specifically sitting. Um, but I had a friend who had moved from where we were at over to Proofpoint. And they have an office office there in Draper. And I'd trained this gentleman at Fat Pipe. And when he moved, he's like, dude, I think you should really come look at us over here. Um, ironically, I'd checked Proofpoint about four years earlier and had passed because they lowballed me so bad on an offer. I was like, no, nah, there's no way. Really? So even the name didn't intrigue you enough to take the lower no, offer? Or? No, not at the time. And frankly, the lower offer was significantly lower. So it would have been a hard 
Yeah. Hard jump to, to make. And at the time I was really doing well there, even though I wasn't happy at the company, the money was great. So <laughs> it's hard to jump. It is funny. There's a couple of, we won't, I won't name names, but I know a couple of folks who work at a particular company that they're not expect, they're not exceptionally happy, but they all admit they are paid very handsomely. So it, they all kind of evens out like, eh, cause I ask them like, do you want me to do an introduction somewhere or do you want to leave? Cause they complain every once in a while. They're like, no, no, they be, they pay me, they pay me well enough not to. I'm like, all right. Right. The funny thing is now in hindsight, right. And looking back on some of the things I know in life, I probably would have taken the lower money. Yeah. Just and now I probably would too, if job happiness wasn't something that was being fulfilled where I'm at. Right. But yeah. it is. So. Absolutely. Plus there's so much. I was going to say there's a lot of potential. So you started off, you were inside sales at Pat, uh, Fat Pipe, and yep. then you inside went over sales to, at Proof Point, and doing it, about the same thing, existing customers only. Uh, now, full disclosure, at Fat Pipe, I did new business and existing customers, and I kind of moved around a lot. So I'd had experience doing both. Proof Point, I came over at first and was doing just existing customers. Oh, awesome. Just like Parker. Yeah, yep. Man. Parker was actually on my team. Really? Yeah, we sat right across from each other. <laughs> it's a small world. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> then, how many years were you in inside sales at Brewpoint? Uh, let's see, two years, two full years. Then, how did you get promoted? That's that's like the impossible tasks, like the hardest thing in inside sales at any org. If you want to stay inside that org, to get promoted to inside sales to field is sometimes insurmountable. Yeah, they they pass around a lot of statistics around that um when i was making the move uh and i don't remember any of them <laughs> like you said we could make some up on the spot exactly yep uh well so my first year i had kind of I, i'm gonna say that it was a combination of effort luck timing and political play because my first year i landed a blow out of the water deal with a smaller organization that was on my list out of georgia are you allowed to talk about that or yeah yeah, yeah. I, I don't think they would mind because since i know them it's still a really well, good story i stay in contact with them so it's sea island resort based out of georgia and we had a record-breaking project with them where they basically bought the farm yeah. from proof point at that time almost every single thing that we had oh wow um, there were a few things that they didn't because they just didn't fit their business model um or had a real requirement for it but they they did a significant amount and that deal in my first year closing literally last minute it was super fun and stressful how, how uh, last minute is it like the afternoon before the quarter ends it, we're talking december like 27th i finished processing it oh my god yeah so not just end of quarter but like end of, end year. of the fiscal year yeah yeah and we got it across the line uh yeah so it was super last minute well that earned me the potential for an award there which was called the wallet share award and i was going up against another deal that was pretty good it was really good too um but i won and so i made it the stage now that same year we had a new vp of sales blake salet who's still now our cro right oh. uh so not only did he invite me up on stage you know after my first full year of sales but he remembered me because of that deal and we talked on and off and got to know him and I continued to engage him in some of my other deals moving into the next year. Well, about three or four months into the next year, I knew that I was going to hit president's club that year without a doubt because I had enough build out to do it. And I, I was pretty confident. So I called up Blake 
who at the time was VP of all sales, right? And I said, um, I kind of want to move to the field and I like the prospects of Texas. And he was like, well, obviously I'm biased to Texas because he <laughs> lives in Austin. Yep. <laughs> and he's like, so I want to keep some of our best people happy. You're doing well. You continue to do well. It sounds like you're set up to do well. Let me make some introductions to you. So he introduced me to uh, our VP of South at the time, Chris Daniel, great guy, based out of Georgia, ironically, which was one of my territories I was covering. So I flew out there and met up with Chris Daniel, and we went on a couple of sales calls together. And by about the end of that day, uh, first off, I, I'll, I'll go back. Our first meeting that I take Chris Daniel on, right, was with a small, not small, actually a, a big hosting company that is based out of there as well. And... The guy comes down into the lobby. We have to go through security and all that stuff since they're, you know, a hosted services company. And the guy wraps me in this big old gorilla arm hug right in front of Chris Daniel, right? And we have a great meeting with the CISO and everything goes well. Um, so anyways, after that meeting and the other couple of meetings that I went on with Chris Daniel, he's like, well, I'm going to tell you right now, you do better than most of my field reps do right now. So you've got what it takes. I think there's just a few things that maybe you could work out as far as being in the field. But let me make you some introductions into everybody in my org, and we'll see what's available for you. That's astronomical. You're that good right off the bat. I've been in front of customers for a <laughs> long time, man. Yeah. You know, it's not like this was my first. Not your first face-to-facing. No, yeah. no. I mean, I'd done it at Fat Pipe. They already had me kind of doing some of that at, at Proofpoint as well. And yeah. I've been in sales for quite a while, frankly, uh, and I knew what I was doing for the most part. And these yeah. uh, the customers that I chose, this is why it's not all luck, were very catered to people that I knew I could get in front of and make a good impression too. Mm-hmm. Good idea. So it, it, did, it was a little bit of a political play, quite frankly, too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it went really, really well. And then I started meeting all the directors of the different organizations from Georgia all the way here to Texas, interviewed with multiple different ones and kind of had my pick of the litter of where I wanted to go, had a couple of different offers, but there was a head spot that was opening up in Texas and that's what I really wanted. And I really liked the then uh, director of North Texas, which was Michael Blair. Mm So I fell in love with him. I fell in love with the idea of Texas, which I already wanted. And everything lined up that he finally got to a position where he could make me the offer, and he did. And then what, what made you want to move to Texas? Uh, it's a combination of many things. Texas is similar to Utah in the sense of politically they're not that far off. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't have snow, and that's a— that's <laughs> Most a, of the time. Well, that, that really doesn't count because that snowstorm, I was driving around in it in my two-wheel drive truck at the time. Like, man, what are you guys worried about? Why are y'all closed? Anyways, uh, and I love the culture down here. I like the kind of d- down south feel. Oh, yeah. um, there's a lot about it that I really liked. Also, frankly, uh, we're talking almost three years ago now, I knew that this t- area was going to grow and continue to grow, and I've only seen it do excellent things since then. So that just also made sense if from a career perspective to take this spot. It's one of the most best, it's pretty much, I'm biased, but one of the best places for businesses is Dallas-Fort Worth. I mean, we, shoot, we can't go a, a day without hearing some small or major business relocating, sometimes halfway across the country to come here. And the only instance I've 
ever heard of a business leaving DFW was Exxon moving back to Houston with their global headquarters, which a lot of the executives are already in Houston because that's the oil industry, you know, headquarters. So I don't even know if I really count that as losing And it's still it. Texas. Yeah, exactly. So, you I know. mean, they have the Irving headquarters where a lot of the executives sat, but a lot of the operations is already in Houston. So that's, I don't, I don't really count that as really losing that business. No. But, I mean. And Houston's growing, too. Oh, I mean, absolutely. There's a lot going on down in that area. So it doesn't surprise me at all. Oh, yeah. I mean, shoot. I I'm surprised s- it was in Dal- North Dallas for that long, honestly. Right? Yeah. Or, well, not North Dallas. I guess you'd call that Dallas, Dallas, if it's in Irving. Yeah, no, that's true. But, yeah, I, I still kick myself for not buying a house when I first moved here. Like, God dang, I should have just found some way. Hindsight is always twenty twenty. It is. I mean, gosh dang it, though. But this seems to be the worst, where, like, prices of houses are now so gosh darn astronomical. Like, it's... A lot of things are going to have to go right for me to conceivably actually own a house in in Dallas-Fort Worth. And that's a whole other <laughs> podcast that yeah. we can go after. <laughs> How on. to buy a house in 2022. That's, yeah. That, yeah. There could be a book written about that that, oh, that Rubik's Cube of a problem or scenario. <laughs> if you didn't do it 10 years ago, you're kind of hosed. Oh, yeah. Kind of like Austin. I mean, shoot. that. I have My family, they still have a house there, but it's only because they bought a house like 35 years ago, I think. Right. Like, they keep telling me about... You know, just the cost keeps going up and up and up. And I'm pretty sure the only, every tech company, at, at least except HPE, has an office in Austin. Like, it's a huge tech hub. I would be curious to see what the actual percentage of first-time home buyers are happening in North Dallas or North North Texas in general, right? If we're talking yeah. between, let's, let's just call it President George Bush Tollway and Salina, yeah, and east and west. I within call it twenty miles of either side of Dallas North Tollway. I'll yeah. bet you that percentage is like one, if even that, <laughs> if even that, because I don't think you can afford a house in that this no. this community without having equity. No, quite frankly, of some sort. I I can't unless unless you have a very specific skill set. I don't think it's possible. Yeah, I mean, which is interesting. Anyways, I mean, you used, yeah, I mean, you used to be able to buy a house for you know. "Quote unquote," you know, used to be, aff- and they still are affordable. I mean, it's just geography. I know, like my rent in Iowa was a lot cheaper compared to my rent in Texas. I mean, just supply and demand. So hopefully, they'll catch up with the houses, and the city will keep growing in circumference, and we'll just keep building out. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> but we'll see. Time, time will tell. Yes, it will. So how have you been like? So you got to Brewpoint Field. Yep. How do you? Fir- how was your first experience, or how do you like that? Field was about the same as what I expected. I mean, I was already used to kind of meeting customers again face-to-face. Uh, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Uh, instantly started getting into my my deals and into my clients. I will say that the deals are slower than what I was used to in a smaller company right, or in smaller size accounts. organizations and accounts. Um, but the the general feel and what my goal was in all of those has always been the same, right? It's It's finding the right people, the right problems, and aligning those with what we have to offer to fix those problems. I mean, that doesn't change anywhere you go. True. Uh, but, yeah, the deal sizes do take a little bit longer sometimes. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I found that relatively quickly I was able to get in and get some really good traction. My first year was actually great mm-hmm. uh, in the field, so I, I managed to nail quota my very first year out. 
there. Congrats. Right that's, so, yeah. That's unheard of. Bad. Yeah. Um, since then, I mean, I, I kind of had a bad second year for some personal reasons. What year was that, though? Uh, 2021. Well, we also had COVID, too. I we mean, did. We did. And <laughs> like that, 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 yeah. That was another <laughs> factor in that. But I mean, my 2021 started off really, really, really strong. I yeah. still did okay. Mm-hmm. Ironically, looking back at those years mm-hmm. or at that year versus many of my colleagues that came and go and went. Yeah. Actual growth inside of my territory still was on par or better than any of my colleagues during yeah. that year. But it wasn't a year that I called super successful. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know so many companies where, I mean, a lot of the executives in C-suites, a lot of the shareholders, they just wanted to freeze all projects, like freeze all spending. And a lot of the projects, like nearly all my infrastructure projects were either put on hold or canceled. Which is crazy because like, infrastructure is the big budgets too. Right? I So I, it's interesting to see. Thankfully, things have progressed where it's kind of, well, Texas has been pretty good about getting back to quote unquote normal, whatever normal is. <laughs> but Lease businesses are starting to grow again in many segments, not all. But. Yeah, I can. T- I think I'm. Even though they've said that the economy is slowing down right now too, mm-hmm. or th- we're seeing some some troubles in it, and yeah, I yeah. do see that. I haven't felt too much from a business change, especially in cybersecurity. It still continues yeah. to be just such a hot topic because even if business is bad, mm-hmm. they just can't afford to have these big losses that are happening. Right. Absolutely. And it- that is almost part of the challenge when you're trying to quantify like proposals. They always go, well, what's the ROI? Well, I mean, we could put together an ROI, but I mean, that's going to be very loosely based. Because I had one, like the, um, the CFO wanted an ROI on a NAC security process or network access control. And the CIO understood like, I don't know how you guys are going to get this number, but just get it. So, I mean, in the end, I honestly just, I researched a bunch of different articles, like from Forbes to the New York Times. And I saw like, okay, Here's the average cost of a breach in this year. Here's what the cost product is. You know, here's an ROI number. Again, this is, I don't know if I could say this to you, but like, but the CFO had to see something. From my experience on return investments, you did exactly what you're supposed to do, yeah. which is you use some use cases because they are pertinent. They're all made up numbers, right? Yeah. Everything's a made up number, I guess, on some level. But with a supporting case, you have a story that backs right? And then you apply that to their business. Mm-hmm. If they can relate with the story, then that's the number you use. Yep. But and then you take your cost and that's it. But I, I do think that I get that companies have to do return on investments because yeah. they have to justify their spend. Mm-hmm. But it's a silly business practice well, in my opinion. And it's also very hard. I mean, one of the biggest things that happens after a breach, it's not just, you know, the fiscal loss of, look, let's say you lost, you know, a million dollars worth of data. Okay, that's a data point. It's also, I know it's cliche to say, but one of the most important things about a company is the brand. Like one of the reasons, like remember, I think it was two or three years ago, Target got hacked with a credit card. Oh, they're still paying that. It's been longer than two or three years. Really? I think it's been six years maybe really it's time's, been a time's going by too quick that's the yeah, issue it's been a minute but they still i think are paying for that because it's still still lawsuit or still being pe- settled out i don't know about that i but brand right i yeah. think consumers still are wary about what happened there well they well it was dramatic what was it i'm, I'm forgetting the percentage but a significant percent of customers switched to cash only for target which if you're a retailer that's that's a kiss of death because there are multiple studies which i have read i don't know the numbers but 
you spend less money on products and stuff when you're shopping with cash versus credit card. There's just the, you just lose a sense of accountability when you're using credit card. So you don't feel the impact as if you're spending $20 cash, that's going to feel a lot more different than spending $20 on a credit card. Yeah, absolutely. So that must, I would agree with all that. So that's, that must have hurt Target as well. Yeah, and they're not the only example, though, where brand reputation was hurt, too. Right? Absolutely There's not. so yeah. many of them. The one that I think kills me is you have, like, some of those big FICO score companies that are out there that have had major breaches, but we don't have a choice. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Anyways. So, and, and that actually brings me to a really good topic that I think is important for everybody to understand. And, and I'm not sure if you're even aware of this yet, but phishing used to be our number one threat threat that would come through emails, right? We were mm -hmm. saw, seeing URLs. Yep. It was mostly based on phishing, right? Right. The trend is now changing and shifting. That still exists as, as it always does. Ransomware still exists as it always does. But frankly, ransomware, phishing are not where the bad actors are going. They're moving towards business email compromise and email account compromise because the financial gain has proven to be larger with these business email compromise than ever with the gist of simple phishing. Now, I'm not gonna say that phishing might not be a direction that they use to initiate this business email compromise, but that continues to be something that I think we'll see in the industry becoming more and more prevalent and relevant. And the FBI is also backing that up. Well, I agree. It's just like a couple of years ago, everyone was putting most, not most, a lot of their IT resources and IT security spend into firewalls because they thought that was the largest attack vector. So we had companies like Palo, I don't wanna say they over-engineered it, but they, they've built a really robust firewall solution so hackers and a lot of them are saying, hey, that's not the easiest vector of attack. Let's pivot to something. So yeah, it used to be for many years, I mean, phishing, you just click it, you know, simple, easy money, but they're slowly starting to adapt. So I'm, I'm not surprised yeah, the interesting that the thing, right? threat vector is moving again. Yeah, and the interesting thing is, is, so those firewalls and everything like that, it did shift, you know, the, that threat vector to what people are talking about a, a lot, which is the individual and that people are the weak link, which I don't think that's ever going to change, no. unfortunately. You're, but we've used our, the, the target hasn't shifted with business email compromise. It's yeah. still people, it's just the tactic at which is being deployed. So unfortunately, I just watched one uh, this last month where a, a client of mine, and I cannot mention of course. at all, uh, they were in fact hit with what had happened is one of their suppliers got a ca uh, compromised on some level what that meant for them is they got access to the um, their email and saw who was being reached out to and who was doing what. Then they used a man-in-the-middle attack and used a typo-squatted domain to interject themselves into a conversation they initiated from the hacked email account. So hacked email account goes in there, responds to an executive asking for a wire to be changed, then in the reply to, they changed it with a display name or a display that was typo squatted to get the return responses. And that's when they interjected themselves to ask for that wiring to be changed. So that's a very, very elaborate. complicated and elaborate attack, but it's because yeah. they did have access to one of their partners, which brings me to a very important point that part of business email compromise is supply chain risk and a big portion that people don't talk about. Well, 
Unfortunately, in this case, this particular company lost about $850,000. Just because they wired it to the wrong area? Yep. Oh, jeez. And it's gone. Not ever. I will say that the government has gotten better about stopping these wires, but in this case, it went offshore. It was transferred yeah. out of that offshore. That money's gone. And I would never... I would never advise a business to depend on the government for their backup plan nope. either or their security. <laughs> and the other thing that kills me about this, right, is is where was the business principal to pick up the phone and yeah. simply just ask if this was, in fact, malicious, where they should change it? Because a wire change request in the middle of a, a decent-sized wire transfer is fishy to me no matter what. I agree. And then, actually, can you tell me that story? It was a couple years ago we were hanging out. You're telling me about the story where – the CFO was walking past the CEO, and they were about to do the wire. Oh, yeah, that one's Remember great. that one? Yep. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. one of my favorite security stories. Yeah, so that was a very different type of attack. Not too far off, right? But in this particular case, they did get the credentials of the executive admin for a particular company. And because that executive admin had calendar rights and email rights even for the CEO... Um, when the hacker or the attacker, the bad guy, however you want to call him, was in that account, they saw this meeting coming up that was part of a business buyout possible, right? Saw that the CEO was in that meeting, sent an email on his behalf from the executive admin, looked like it came right from the CEO to the CFO asking him to send the wire that the deal was done and he was finishing up his meeting. Well, the CFO takes those wiring instructions, that meeting ends or whatever, and they just happen to be crossing in the hallway. And he's like, hey, I got the wire instructions right here. I'm walking it to finance right now to send that out so that we can get this done. And the CEO said to him, what wire? And that is literally the only thing in this particular process that, that saved them. That saved them hundreds of thousands of dollars. And in this particular case... I think we sorted it back down to the only way they could have prevented and stopped this particular threat was probably understanding from the executive admin side on what links are malicious or not. Yeah, or having URL rewrite. Yeah, well, <laughs> URL rewrite may or may not have stopped it, right? Because yeah. there's always this point of unknown with URLs that I think is another thing that businesses need to start recognizing is that the URL landscape is not what it was a couple of years ago either. True. Many of these URLs that are being delivered now are being hosted on trusted sites and domains, i.e. Google Docs, i.e. SharePoint, OneDrive, etc. And then inside of that, there's a hosted document that then has a link to a phishing site. And that is a very complicated kill chain to actually walk through and understand for any type of technology. And then weren't you telling me that most of SharePoint is malicious? Or what website were you saying where... OneDrive and SharePoint. Something like 67% of the files being shared right now inside of Microsoft are, in fact, malicious. That's astronomical. Between SharePoint and OneDrive. Yep. That's so much. Yeah. Another interesting one that I'm seeing when we're talking about business email compromise is I'm seeing another rise in delivery sources for application traffic or direct co to consumer traffic, i.e. the MailJets, the MailChimps, um, some of the SendGrid is another big one that companies are using, mm -hmm. being used with malicious intent. And the reason that they're doing that is twofold. First off, SendGrid doesn't care 
if your stuff is malicious or not. They're not in the business of checking for viruses. They're in the business of delivering mail. Are they not headquartered in the U.S.? Doesn't matter. Not their monkey, not their circus. Because a lot of them will shut you down. Well, if you get too many strikes. Every single SendGrid account has a different IP address, I think, associated with the account that's doing the sending, right? They right. have their unique things. It'd be the same thing as like a proof point cluster is set up differently for each customer, right? right. A SendGrid account is probably set up for each customer. Right. So although it's coming from SendGrid and they know that that's their range of IPs, it's also not the receivers not going to blacklist all of SendGrid for when one company sends out all this stuff. As you were saying. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's not very it's not a manageable tactic to use, right? Mm -hmm. So well, they're using these because they can deliver those mail and then they also get tracking information for example on that sent mail. And that's so, a very powerful tool in the hands of a of a hacker as well. Cuz they know who's susceptible to opening those random emails and who's susceptible to clicking it, I'm guessing. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And also if the mail address even possibly exists or not, right? If we get no interactions, we can move to the next target. Anyway, so, yeah, I, I see that as being just another area where we're going to see more business email compromise, especially when you're talking about application traffic, right? Stuff that is being done by a machine that we're hoping is fine. But what happens when something happens to that machine or what happens when something happens to your partner in that communication? Just some provocative thoughts to think about. Well, you can trust the machines. They've never gone bad on us. No, never. Uh, yeah. There's no movies about that. No. <laughs> Anyways. And then where do you think, how do you think the IT threat landscape is going to continue to evolve over the next 24 months? Or Man, that's a tough question. I mean, I, again, I do see this business email compromise becoming a bigger problem. I see a driving force still going towards cybersecurity in general, meaning that executives are now, are now starting to talk about it a little bit more. There's more hitting the news, so I think we'll continue to see that. I think that what that creates is a new role and a new requirement for a CISO or uh, even maybe a CIO to have some skill sets around how they're communicating with different business units inside of their organization organization and how they're using different technologies, right? Um, and I see that being something that we continue to see trend. So that communication factor is going to be really, really important. What I think this will mean for the market space overall is a continued lack of real talent because right. that's going to increase the need for talent in these different business units that are all leveraging technology in different ways. And unfortunately, one of those main ways that they do is email and cloud-based. And those are two very open areas for problems. Yes, they're scalable and companies are continuing to use them, but I think we're going to see a problem. Uh, I think there's a couple of other moves and plays that are happening that are I think are very interesting. Uh, Microsoft just did a large increase in their request for their renewals for, the e for all of their licensing models. And I think that's going to create some pressure for a lot of these companies on what they're going to do from a security perspective, uh, as well as a collaboration perspective. Um, I've seen that, I believe it was Google just purchased Mandiant, which I yep. think is an interesting services-driven approach that we haven't seen Google do. So I'm curious what we're going to see them start to do to increase their footprint against the 
gorilla or the elephant in the room, Microsoft, with their collaboration tools. They continue to do really well in the GovEd sector, sector, which I think is also a threat to Microsoft's footprint. So I think we're going to see maybe some fluxes there. That'd be interesting. Go I know Google, they have enough resources. They could do anything they want, but they also are kind of notorious for abandoning projects. Like I remember, what was it, four or five years ago, they had Google Fiber. And they're really confident about rolling that everywhere. And then they're like, eh, we don't want to become an ISP. Yeah, because they have enough money they can throw at something like that and decide that yeah. they're Audi. Exactly. Yeah. It'll, it'll be interesting to see if they bolster that security and try to be, we'll compete see. with Microsoft, especially in the public sector. We will see. I don't know. I really don't know. But I, I mean... It's not the first or the last time that we've seen companies go after Microsoft as being the elephant and then yeah. Microsoft also continuing to win. True. So I think they won that the notorious or the infamous, you know, $10 billion Jedi project for the Pentagon private cloud. Pretty sure. I'm pretty sure they won that contract. I was being disputed by Amazon because they were the two, two big contenders. Yeah. They were to the two biggest bidders. I think that was 2020. I don't know if that, actually went through that's being litigated because I know Amazon felt they were being treated unfairly, hmm. but, and that's another gorilla I think we should add into this mix that we haven't seen do it much with cybersecurity yet, but they continue to increase their hosting services is what's going to happen if Amazon decides to put their hat in that ring too, which I, I think is something we should all be aware is a possibility. Quite oh, absolutely. Frankly. They have the, if any company has the resources, it's Amazon. Yeah. It's AWS. That's what a lot of people think they're big because they sell books and everything on amazon.com. That is a small portion of what Amazon does. I mean, yeah. it's hard to think of what and does what, to, what isn't powered by AWS. Know, right? <laughs> and that, that you know, that's something else that I think we were talking about the other day, right? Is you have Broadcom now also just purchased VMware, VMware yeah. and that's going to open up a big boatload of opportunity for Amazon, in my opinion. Well, people don't want to pay a month-to-month subscription. I know that much. I mean, I think Microsoft's going to come out ahead in terms of Azure subscriptions are going to go up and as well as their uh, hypervisor as, and then Nutanix will probably, they'll probably do pretty well. But I know a lot of folks who are on VMware and they know the month to month subscription is coming and they're not, no one is excited for that. Well, I mean, let's, we'll <laughs> see what Broadcom does with that business. I can tell yeah. you what I, what we saw from Proofpoint when they got a gobbled up semantic, right? Was a right. lot of very unhappy customers Yes. That were already <laughs> unhappy with Symantec, and now they're just pissed. I, I, I'll research, like, a couple, you know, Fortune 100 and all of those domains on uh, mxtracker.com. I'll be like, you know, who's still on Symantec? And I think it was last week, and it's like, Ford. That's the only one. Like, everyone else is using Proofpoint. Ford doesn't really I mean, surprise me, though, because Symantec's, well, Broadcom's purchase of Symantec said that they would focus on their strategics, and Ford's probably one of their strategics, so they're probably servicing Ford very, very well. True. But Could it be done for less, maybe, somewhere else? Of course. Could it be done more effectively somewhere else? Probably, but... But it's funny, if you do... There's always that partnership, and they probably feel like they're all in bed together. True. But a spoiler alert for the listeners out there, if you go to mxtooltracker.com and search any other automotive company, just take toyota.com and you'll see most of them use ProPoint. Yeah. <laughs> anyways, that's, pro that's not up to me to say, but that is uh, well, uh, public information. Not, yeah, I was about to say, anyone can use that website. It's a free website. It's it very fun. <laughs> Yeah. What do you like to do outside work besides help me for a year building these awesome big tables? Well, this was a great <laughs> project, man. Um, and I'm looking forward to doing some more. Uh, I've got all sorts of hobbies. Uh, obviously, spending time with Alex and Karen. Yep. Love that. I'm a big movie buff. I like to game when I can finally make the time to do it. My dogs are super important to me, as you know. 
Um, really big into dogs. How big's a puppy yet? Oh man, so uh, we've done kind of the math on his trajectory, right? And he's gaining seven pounds per week. Per week, so about a pound a day that he's putting on. How much food is that guy crazy, eating? Right? Oh my gosh! Uh, I don't know. He seems like he's eating all the time. <laughs> uh, so what? He's up to thirty. Two pounds on Monday when I took him into the vet. Or 31 pounds, something like that. That's her baby Great Dane Atlas? Yeah, baby Great Dane Atlas. He's got the cutest little paw, or the big paws, but his body's still small. I know. (laughs) I picked it up, by the way, the other day, Karen and I were talking, and I put it up on Apollo's footprint that I have from when he was around. And And it's still small compared to Apollo's, but Apollo was like, you know. Yeah, the little, is it the plaster moldings that you have of him? Yeah. Yeah, what is it? Plaster of Paris. Yeah, he's got some big paws to fill. Yeah, he does, <laughs> but he continues to grow. Um, I like anything outdoors, RC cars. I like. Oh, yeah, Traxxas. I get a chance to do them. Um, so yeah, I've got lots of hobbies, man. Shooting, obviously. Yeah. You think you can get the new slasher Traxxas? They'll go eighty-eight miles an hour as a truck. I don't even know yet. <laughs> I don't even know. It's blue. I still got to get my my gas one up and moving again since it's still got a burnout clutch. Oh, that's true. We're gonna have to upgrade that this weekend. I just got the. I still. I, don't, I haven't installed it. I still have the differential to upgrade that on the Traxxas UDR. Yeah, I think we need to bust that out. Maybe a couple of weeks to do that. Yeah, it needs to cool off so we can be in garages again. <laughs> yeah, I, I tried doing some work in the garage last night. It's like it's just unbearable. I'm like it's ah, so hot, and it's only gonna get hotter for a couple more months too. So I don't know. Yeah, although you know it won't be that bad if we listen to ERCOT and we have our. You know, oh, yeah. No, they, you could sleep at 83 degrees. I laughed when I they, saw that commercial. They like, want us to uh, up our AC to 90 next, probably. I mean, given their trend, I wouldn't be surprised. But I just laughed. I'm like, it's a small sample size of maybe, you know, maybe 30 to 50 people I talk to on a regular basis. No one is following that rule or that suggestion. It's just. It's ridiculous. No. <laughs> I'd seen a meme the other day that made me laugh, and it was turning the AC down to, like, 65, and it's like, I'm the ERCOT now. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's my house. I, I It's Texas. I, I don't want to be hot. Yeah. Well, and what was it this last uh, summer, winter, whatever, they were hacking? Uh, not hacking, because it's, it was, it was told that it was... When you signed up yeah, for your yeah, yeah. They cl- yeah. licensing agreement for the product, was it yeah. the Nest or? Yeah, so is the you get a free Nest, which for the folks who don't know, it's a Internet of Things connected thermostat, and in your user agreement, which just like the iTunes agreement, all that stuff, no one reads. They are allowed to adjust your thermometer when they see fit, you know, during peak hours. But yeah, as soon as I read that, I'm like, I'm glad I have the old-fashioned mercury piece of junk at the apartment that I used to rent, and this one. I think we should all go back to the analog dial. Yeah, that's what I had. You can hear it <laughs> click. Yeah, it's if you open that up, there's like a mercury uh, little capsule inside that helps all that stay in touch. But yeah, I read that. And I'm like, well, it's not technically hacking, but it pissed off a lot of consumers because of course they didn't read it. But no. I mean, if they're trying to maintain, so for the folks who don't who don't know, ERCOT, the big Texas conglomerate, kind of governs the electric grid. They were altering people's thermometers to try to offset so that there wouldn't be any outages. That's kind of their theory of why they're doing that. Which I, I guess it does make sense because the outages aren't great either. But how about you just get your poop in a group yeah, exactly. and stop letting the grid be so unreliable? Yes. And just make it a little bit more robust. Yeah. One of these days, I'm just going to build my own Texas ranch where I just have a farm of windmills and solar panels just enough square footage where that makes sense and I can actually just yeah, be go. off the grid and not worry about electric bills ever again. 
There you go. That sounds like the life right there. Exactly, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I know you got to get going. Thanks for coming on the podcast, brother. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me, man. It was great. Thanks, man. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, tell your friends, tell your enemies. Heck, tell anyone. Thanks for listening. Y'all stay safe. Have a great day. Talks.